Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I had just a fantastic week last week at the Solution Tree PLC Summit. Now, my word for 2022 was impact, and wow, was I impacted. There were just over 2,000 educators there in Phoenix, and to see how passionately they immersed themselves in their professional learning was truly inspiring. So I was at the conference for only two of the three days, and I only presented on one of them the first day. So on day two, I was able to attend the conference, and it was on that day when I watched as a third-party observer how passionate the attendees were and how seriously they took up the work. Now look, I can't speak for all 2,000 participants, but what I can say is that the ones I saw were really getting after it. So I said I'd report periodically on how I was impacted in 2022, So there's my first report to you, okay? All right, I finished up the week uh, in Cokeville, Wyoming on Friday, and I'll spend Tuesday tomorrow in Huntsville, Alabama before heading home on Wednesday. A quick reminder to you of the upcoming events this spring, Grading from the Inside Out two-day training. That'll be virtually April 5th and 12th, face-to-face in Des Moines, Iowa, March 28, 29, and face-to-face San Antonio, April 25th and 26th, Standards-Based Learning in Action will also be in San Antonio right after the Grading from the Inside Out training, April 27th, 28th. So there's two trainings back-to-back, four days in San Antonio. All of the information for the events can be found on the Solution Tree website. There's links in the show notes for those as well. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. No guest this week, it's solo episode, so we're going to continue our exploration of the definition of success by highlighting the answers all of our guests have provided since September. So we're going to begin with Greg Walcott, who you recall joined me back in September, and we're going to finish with Sue Brookhart, who was just last week's episode. I always find it inspiring when you hear all of these sort of definitions of success back to back, so looking forward to that. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to begin what I think is going to become a three-part exploration or a think-aloud about trauma-informed assessment practices. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. have the montage of defining success coming up in a few moments. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a question. Does every generation get it right? Here's what I mean. Now, I've reached an age where I can see a few generations ahead of me and a few generations behind me. I feel like I'm literally in the middle. I'm Gen X, born in 1967. Gen X is typically between the years 1965 and 1980. Those parameters, of course, are not etched in stone, but that is the general range of my generation. So ahead of me, of course, is the greatest generation, so-called, 1901 to 1927. There is the silent generation, 1928 to 1945. And then, of course, there are the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964. Now behind me, generationally, there are the millennials, typically 1981 to 1995. There's Gen Z, born 1996 to 2010. And then, of course, there's Generation Alpha. I did not know that was a thing until I looked it up. But it makes sense. Once we get to the end of the alphabet, we wrap around and begin again. So Generation Alpha, 
born in 2011 to 2025. Now, it seems generation wars are in vogue these days, especially the one between the baby boomers and the millennials. Now, my generation seems to have sidestepped this generational warfare, and I'm convinced, at least partially, that it's because most in my generation just don't care. I'm reminded of the meme I saw a few years ago referencing Gen X. It said, hey, boomers and millennials, while you're busy hating on each other, just know that there's a generation in the middle that hates you both. I thought it was kind of funny. But I'm sure there's someone out there that'll be disproportionately offended and in their feelings because of that meme. Look, the whole generation war thing for me is tired and cliche. No generation ever says, you know that younger generation? They've got it figured out better than we did. However, there are some things I find peculiar about how generations interact in society. So this is my first wondering. Are we sure every generation gets everything right? Now that seems to defy logic, right? Really? No generation ever gets anything wrong? I think collectively, every generation tries to pick up the mantle and continue the positive improvement trajectory. And I'm not really talking about tangibles like technology. I think that's a given. I think that no matter what, technology is going to advance. I'm talking more about social norms and mindsets. Has or will any generation ever get it wrong and or go too far? On the one hand, yes, every generation tries to pick up the mantle and continue to improve society. But what is interesting about that is it seems to be in only one direction. It seems to only be in the direction of being more progressive. I can't think of one generation that collectively ever asserted, you know how we're going to improve society from what our parents did? We're going to be more conservative. Maybe it's simply a function of age, I don't know, but it seems that it only goes in one direction. And I know it's unfair to reduce any generation to a monolith, as that doesn't honor the vast diversity of thinking found within any generation. But it's hard to argue against the idea of a dominant mindset that emerges because it is so palpable. Will it ever go too far? Well, I know some think so. You need only look at conversations or debates or even arguments around gender identity to see a differing view and to find some that assert that it goes too far. And of course, you'll find others who say we haven't gone far enough. I'm not really commenting on that issue here. I'm just using that as an example of how you see that debate in society. But herein lies the observable dichotomy. And I'll phrase it in the form of a question. Why do we tend to defer to the youngest generation to set societal norms? Because on the one hand, we say, with age comes wisdom, right? Experience matters, right? So why does the youngest generation have a disproportionate influence on societal norms? Why do we just defer to them? I mean, it is, after all, a default disposition of young people who, more often than not, just simply don't want to be like their parents. They don't want to replicate the attitudes, the mindsets of their parents. So are the societal shifts really needed? Are they necessary? Or is it just an attempt to be different for the sake of being different, with little to no foresight of the end game? I mean, it's easy to put forth a change. It's another to think through the long-term ramifications and possibly the unintended negative consequences. But on the other hand, adults can be very set in their ways. Once a generation kind of finds its groove, it kind of settles in. One of the most admirable features about teenagers and young adults is that their brains are malleable. Like teenagers especially can be very adaptable. 
And maybe so maybe the younger generation is the right generation to push societal norms since they bring a fresh perspective on the way society has been set by previous generations. I mean, every generation thinks they get it right. So why would we expect any generation to be introspective and say, wait a minute, we got this wrong, let's fix it. Introspection illusion, right? We've talked about that many times on the podcast. Now, if you pick one singular issue, you can probably find an example of either side, right? The collective societal reset to examine real racial equity is for sure a net positive. But on the other hand, social media, as an example, I think is a net negative. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't positives about social media, but I think the way social media has infused its way into our mainstream means that there has to be some examination of its impact. If you've been on Twitter for a while, and I've been on Twitter since July of 2009, it has really changed over the years. You know, it went from a fringe tool or a toy to a main source of information and misinformation, right? So again, you pick one singular issue, you can see positive, the fight for racial equity. Pick another singular issue, social media, and you might see a net negative. Now, I'm going to continue to use social media because it's become a norm and it's necessary to some degree. But again, I still think it's a net negative on our society. So this leads me to my second wondering, which was is really more of an epiphany than a wondering. You know how some suggest that people become more conservative as they get older? I realize now that that is likely an illusion. So think of the imaginary line between, between the notion of progressive and conservative. If each generation keeps moving that line to the more progressive side of the ledger, then it's not the people who are changing. It's the line that keeps changing. It's the line that keeps moving. And when that line crosses me, then I, as a person, become more conservative, even though I haven't actually changed. You know, I just become more conservative because I might not subscribe to the logic behind some new societal norm. This reminds me a little bit of the statements that are often made by those of Mexican-American heritage when they consider the plight of their ancestors, when they talk about the fact that they didn't cross the border, the border crossed them, referring, of course, to the fluidity of the border between the United States and Mexico. Even after the Mexican-American War ended in February of 1848, the border was still quite fluid. So we didn't cross the border. The border kept crossing us back and forth. So some generations, to put that back into context, might say, I haven't changed. It's society that's changed. I'm the same person. I haven't become more anything. So older generations would say, to the younger generations, you say, well, you lack the experience, you lack the wisdom. And younger generations would say, you're, you're out of touch. And honestly, I don't think you're going to talk either out of their position. It is a timeless phenomenon. The older generation lamenting the younger generation. You know, kids today, it's not like back, back in our day. But what do we do if the older generation is actually right? Even if every once in a while, just not all the time, but even if every once in a while, what if there are some things in our society that, for example, used to be better? Like, would we ever notice? Would we ever talk about that? Would we ever notice or would younger generations even care if, for example, we actually used to be happier as a society? Maybe we were happier a generation ago because of how we lived. And again, it depends on whose lens and whose perspective we're talking about. 
But would we just chalk that up as the, the good old days? And would the younger generation just dismiss any assertion as revisionist history? You know, listen, old man, you just think things were better back then. I think it's obvious to see that the macro trajectory is positive on our society. The majority of our society is more open, it's more tolerant, and more diverse. I'm not saying anything is solved. But I simply reject the notion that some things are worse than they've ever been before. When I hear people, for example, say that racism is worse than ever, it's worse than it's ever been, I think to myself, really? It's worse than separate water fountains? It's worse than when some human beings owned other human beings? In Canada, it's worse than a Canadian government policy that actively tried to deal with the, quote, Indian problem, end quote? Again, I'm not saying we don't have a long way to go, and in some ways, we've made much less progress than one would have anticipated. I mean, some reserves in Canada still do not have clean drinking water, which is unconscionable. And then there's the whole reservation system itself and land rights, etc. We've got a long way to go. But I do think we need to keep perspective. I know hyperbole is, you know, is key right now to gaining attention, but to say things are worse than they've ever been... I think often goes a little bit too far. I mean, they could still be awful, but, but it's not worse than it's ever been in terms of how far we've progressed. On the net, I do think our societal evolution has been positive as each new generation pushes the thinking of the older generations. I think the trajectory has been positive, but not perfect. Colleges and universities used to be places for diverse thoughts, used to be places for debates of ideas. But now it seems that if a speaker is booked that the majority of the student body doesn't agree with, they protest relentlessly until the university cancels a speaker. How dare you give that person any oxygen? Are we really unable to listen to differing perspectives without melting down? Look, I'm not talking about extreme hate speech here, but I'm just talking about a different worldview. So much of that protesting boils down to virtue signaling, and a little bit of fragility. Look, I, I know you can think of an acute situation to counter my point. So can I. I think at the macro level, it's been positive. You know, you can think of, um, at the micro level, you can think of an example that might, you know, again, refute my point. But I just feel like no generation should just get an absolute free pass or a blank check to rewrite societal norms without at least there being a question. It just makes me wonder how. How will we recognize when we've pushed things too far? And who will be the one to correct it and say, hey, enough's enough? And how would that even occur? I mean, I had a lot of opinions and perspectives about being a parent, especially before I became a parent, and especially when I was being parented as a teenager. And then I became a parent. And I saw behind the curtain. And I gained a new appreciation for how difficult parenting can be. Now, I recognize that I've been speaking more generically than specifically. And you might be wondering if there are any specific aspects of society that I'm thinking of. And admittedly, there are. But my thoughts really aren't fully formed right now. So this really is a think aloud and just kind of a wonderment on my part about the evolution of society through different generational sort of forces. My point here is that we're not perfect. 
No one is. No generation is. Which means it's only common sense that not all so-called advancements are actually better. For me, societal advancements have followed a positive trajectory of improvement. But it hasn't been a straight line. And at some point, we need to find a way to reflect and say, you know what? How about we take a pass on that one? Or, you know, change isn't always positive. Maybe we press pause and think through the potential ramifications instead of rushing to be different. I don't know how we will ever do that. But it would be my contention that we need to collectively figure it out. As you know, I finish every interview with the question, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success, how would you answer them? Well, here's what our guests since September have told us their definition of success is. You know, I think my definition of success is is really having the, the knowledge, skills, and, and attitudes to kind of navigate all the obstacles and opportunities that life brings forward. You know, do, do I have the, you know, I think success is having the, that knowledge, the skills and the attitudes, using our strengths that, that we each individually have um, to handle everything that, that comes our way. That, that to me is, is success, is, is, you know, can I, can I handle everything? Um, do I have, you know, we're going to have a bad day. But do I have some strategies that I know how to combat after a, a, a bad day? Do I have an attitude that, hey, I realize that? Okay, again, 51st date, so we're going to start again tomorrow. You know, I really believe um, that success is that determination to succeed, even when those around you may not believe that you can succeed. Um, and the reason, you know, one of the things um, I was in college and went to one of my professors just to ask, you know, advice. I really wanted to go to grad school and um, I'll never forget. She looked, you know, sitting at her desk, looked across at me and said, um, graduate school isn't for students like you. And that just, you know, that was like one of those moments that if that's not deficit mindset in action, <laughs> that was like the definition of it. And I just remember that sinking feeling of, you know, why, why, why isn't it for students like me? What does she mean by that students like me? Um, and, and rather than um, allow that, allow those words to extinguish um, my desire to learn, it, it lit a fire in me. And, and so I, I think I've subscribed to the growth mindset, even before I knew that there was a label or such a term, but, but I really do see it as, you know, a person who is determined to succeed, um, no matter what, right. And, and even if you hear voices of doubt, and even if you hear you can't, or, um, you know, you shouldn't, um, you persist. And um, you, you, you know, chart that course and stick to it. You know, even if it, even if it means you end up in a different place than you thought you were going to end up, I never envisioned that I would be here today. That wasn't the, 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 the path that I ever imagined for myself, but, but I think that, that that's what success is. 
Well, first of all, success to me does not mean money or power. Uh, it The first thing to me, I had three things. I thought about this and I had three things. So I thought first, um, meaningful work that contributes to something bigger than your own ego. And I think that is is what to me is, is success. And then the second thing is that we balance that with what I would call passionate pastimes. So your passionate pastime might be your job. It might be education, but I think you need another passionate pastime. So whether that be, you know, cooking or gardening or music or uh, what a uh, classic movies, whatever. I think there needs to be something in your life in which you really get to enjoy and feel passionate about. And then the third piece to me is meaningful personal relationships, that you have relationships with people who care about you and people that you care about. And if I can get all three, I think I'm doing pretty good right now. Uh, if I can get those three things to me, that is a, is a successful life. So I think it probably would have two parts. The first would have to do with feeling like I'm making a contribution. And we know that that's the same thing that is so important for kids' resilience, feeling like you matter, like the work you're doing has value. It's why I love being in education, because everything we do has the potential to improve a child's life or harm a child's life if we get it wrong. The stakes feel very, very high. But on those days when I feel like I've helped a kid grow in some way or develop some self-awareness or some self-advocacy or a skill that allows them to connect with others, those are the most gratifying moments for me. Uh, on a professional level, personally, I feel that success is getting to do things that I feel passionately about. Like you, I love interviewing people and just being a lifelong learner and learning from other people all of the time. It's why I like writing and journalism. And I find that I can get really lost in my work and have that flow. That to me is a state of complete happiness professionally. And then success personally is just that I have people in my life who fill my bucket, who I love and who love me, and that those connections, those strong connections are prioritized. And there's, I won't say some balance, because I feel like for some of us, balance means, you know, we're either 100% on or 100% off, but that over time, that I'm not short circuiting the things that are the most important, those relationships and connections with other people. You know, I'm going to I'm going to use what I call a Mattoism because Mike Mattos is one of my 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 best friends and one of my most important mentors. And he often describes it as the way that I define it. And that is limitless possibilities. You know, that if if kids walk out of our schools and have limitless possibilities in line with what they want to accomplish, that would be a beautiful thing. Right. Um, it's not, it's funny because it's, it's, it, you know, people often say so limitless amount of money. And I'm like, no, you're not getting it. You don't, you don't have to have limitless amount of income to do the things that you're passionate about. If, if I have a nephew who wants to be a really good electrician and that's what makes him happy to know that we've given him everything in our system that will allow him to go down that path would be phenomenal right, would be phenomenal. If that's what's going to make him happy insofar as the kind of life he wants to live, the kind of time he wants to spend with his family, 
So nothing really deep. I think it's just limitless possibilities for the kids we serve on the path that they choose to take would be my idea of success. Okay. You would think that I would have an answer. I listen to your podcast. I hear people's responses. I've thought about this and I feel like, I feel like it's a, it's kind of like a, a moving, a moving answer for me. So today what I'm going to say, success is when you can fall asleep at night and feel like you made a difference. And it can be teeny tiny. Maybe you made a difference to the stranger in the parking lot that you let take the take the spot. Maybe you, maybe it was that you got to attend your child's soccer game. You got to be there. Maybe it's something in the classroom. But that that to me, it's that connection back to the top of Maslow's hierarchy when we feel that we are connected to something outside of ourselves. To me, that feels like success these days. Um. In, in my case, um, I actually would, would not say happiness. I have a wonderful friend who's a psychiatrist who was fond of saying happiness is all, not it's all cracked up to be. Uh, life is full of challenge and, and difficulty. For me, um, success is, is a life of meaning and purpose. Um, and I have been lucky enough to have uh, mentors and friends and family members uh, who, who exemplify that. And so uh, I don't wake up every day uh, asking myself, how can I be happy? I do wake up every day saying, how do I live a life of, of meaning and purpose? I would say that my idea of success would be uh, achievement based on practical application of, of skills that I have acquired over time. And, and I'll give you a little bit of an anecdote to, to help with that understanding. It's, um, I was in my Muay Thai training this morning and, uh, and lately the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a lot of drill and kill, a lot of skills practice and, and not really applying the skills or not, you know, creating these, these complicated combos to practice. And, and I find myself, you know, getting a little bit bored sometimes with the, the, the skills drill and kill training, you know, just the same combo over and over and over again. Uh, and so my, the, the professor passed by as, as I was practicing and, and I, and I kind of, you know, I stated that I said, uh, you know, this is a little bit boring. <laughs> I got to say, like, when are we going to get to the good stuff? And it was, uh, his response was, you know, your, your skills have to be so second nature that when you pull them out, the, the only thing that you need to be making, the only decision that you need to be making is which skill am I going to use or what tool am I, am I going to be using? You shouldn't have to be thinking about, uh, did I perform the skill correctly? And so, you know, I was thinking to myself, yeah, you make a really good point. And then we did some sparring and then it was, okay, now, now you can take those skills that you've been practicing over the last few weeks and use them. And you will see when you are successful, you will see that, you know, you've achieved something when you were able to pull the right tool out to use it in the most practical way. And so I think to, for myself, that, that is success when, when I can take the skills and the knowledge that I've acquired over time and apply it in the most practical way. I think that that is, that's pretty successful. I think success to me is ensuring that I'm focused on the process and not so much on the results. If, if I get hyper-focused on where I want something to be, no matter whether it's professionally or personally, and lose sight of what's happening day to day, minute to minute, I don't get the results that I'm looking for many times. I, I really need to focus on that 
focus on the day to day or the minute to minute, you know, professionally focus on that process when I'm working with teachers on assessment, you know, we definitely need to have a goal, but we can't just fixate there. Uh, we have to really focus on that process and the journey and how important that journey is because when I focus on that, usually the results are a little bit better <laughs> than if I get hyper, you know, focused on what I want it to be. Um, so success to me, I mean, maybe that's just how it's generated, but it's where I have to be focused and centered, right? Is that I'm focused on the process. I'm focused on the steps that I want to take um, and then being responsive too to whatever it is that happens, personal, professional, that when things then come my way, what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, continue to move forward with that process? Um, and, and so then I really feel like I, I can get to some of those results that I want. Um, but I just know personally, if I get hyper-focused on the end, then it just doesn't get there the way I want it to. My definition of success is any individual who's willing to sacrifice to not only change the people in front of him or her, but is actually changing generations. And so it's not about you, it's about how are you gonna make this world a better place? How are you gonna make people more um, productive? And how are you gonna help them believe that they can do this work on behalf of not just the children in front of them, not, not, on, not just not on behalf of their own kids, but on behalf of every single child who deserves it. And my question is, what child does not deserve it? Success is um, knowing that at the end of the day, I am kind and people know that I'm kind. Yeah, that at the end of the day, that I know that I'm not hurting people that I'm, I'm, in, in, I'm in interaction with. That's successful for me. Yes, I want to have money and all of that. This baby's safety, this is, what, this is what keeps me up at night. This is what keeps me up at night. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I want him to be happy and whole and I would love to have him be able to live in a world where his children don't experience the things that he's experienced or that I experienced. I would like us to between, before I become a grandma and those kids get old enough to be in school, I would love for the world to be kinder and saner and move toward that one nation. Cause I feel like we're trying to, you know, it's like, why don't we just rip America and have you go on your side or go on mine. That's what it's feeling like. And I, that, that just breaks my heart. So that's what keeps me up at night. And, and, and knowing that what I'm doing it with small bites and with finding your blind spots, knowing that those things contribute to that, there's success right there. I think the general success thing is that, um, I think it's been helpful to me just in my kind of everyday life, if you will. It helped me make my decision about when to retire. It helped the PBIS logic, if you will, help me make decisions about how to develop an IEP for my retirement life. Uh, it helped me kind of assess whether or not, you know, so forth and so on. I think it has given me a set of life tools, decision-making tools that kind of help me as my friend Rob Horner always says, arrange my environment for success, not only for myself, but for my family and my friends, you know, and so forth. Um, trying to be preventative, trying to be optimistic, trying to be database, trying to make decisions based on the best science, trying to stay healthy based on that science. All that stuff has been probably a spinoff of what I've, I've done in the schools and vice versa. I think it's kind of gone both ways, but um, the last two years and 211 days of retirement have been very positively reinforcing 
And um, I think it's because of kind of my prior experiences and having interactions with my with people like yourself and others. It's been pretty phenomenal. I'm very grateful for that. I, I believe that every person um, is designed through your upbringing, your life experiences, you're designed for a thing, to accomplish a thing. And just like this is an analogy, not saying one is the other, in the same way that you can use a tool to do a thing that it's not designed for, but it works best when it's doing the thing it's designed for. Uh, to me, success is finding out what you were designed to do and then throwing yourself into that. And your best is good enough and less than your best is, is not okay. You owe your best to, to the rest of the humans and you do not need to be feel guilty or, or feel bad about any kind of, it, it, there's no relative thing here. It's about you, what you were designed to do. Are you doing that thing? And are you doing your best at it? If your answer to that is yes, that's success. So success to me is all about impact, right? Am I having the impact that I think is important, right? That mission-driven connection to my work is, is really essential. So when I think of defining success, it really comes down to that who has been impacted by my time and, and my work and, and what I'm excited to share. Success is about being in a place where you have the ability to make choices that lead to making your life better and happier, however you define that. I think there's some level of having some resources to do that. Um, but you, I am fortunate enough to be at a place in my life where like, I have the ability to make choices about where I want to work, what car I want to drive, you know, where I want to live, um, how many children I want to have. Um, and, and I really am grateful to have resources to be able to do that. But more importantly, I think success is about driving happiness and satisfaction from those choices that I'm, that I'm making. Like I live a really charmed life. That doesn't mean like I have a vacation home and a yacht, um, but I have people who I love and love me back and we don't have to worry about whether or not the heat's going to work or, you know, the food um, that we'll have. And you can be successful and happy and hungry at the same time, um, but I think there's... Um, there's some level of cognitive load that is lightened when you have resources that are able to um, free you from thinking about, will I be able to eat to what will I eat? Well, I'm going to assume you mean, or at least uh, what I can speak to is learning. So if you ask us, if, if you ask me what's the success, <coughs> what's a success at learning for students, that's when students can understand a learning goal and they take action cognitively, motivationally, 
behaviorally and the choices they make to get there. If they're doing that, they're going to be successful at some point. Um, and uh, they are already successful at uh, learning how to learn, uh, which an educational psychologist might call self-regulation. But uh, even short of how some psychologists measure that, uh, if a student is taking steps to get to where they think they need to go, that's a successful learning experience in a classroom. The co converse of that is a teacher is a su successful at teaching if they support students to do that, which means they do clearly share learning goals and they have practices in their classroom that allow students to, to make those choices and take those steps that we just said they should be doing because in depending on how the classroom is set up, uh, that's a lot easier to do in some classrooms than others. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to begin what I think will be a three-part exploration or a think aloud about trauma-informed assessment practices and what that means, what it looks like, etc. I haven't fully formed my thoughts on this, much like my opening. I haven't really fully formed my thoughts, but I thought I might use the podcast to articulate my thoughts on this. And, and I, I'm envisioning three parts. Today, the setup. Next week, a discussion specifically about what it means to be trauma-informed. And then likely part three would be an exploration of some of the assessment practices we might consider to ensure that we are being trauma-informed. So let's just jump in today, okay? So today I want to talk just a little bit about the emotional side of assessment. Now, many of you have heard me say on several occasions that assessment is not just a clinical exercise in number crunching, right? There is an emotional side to assessment. So I want to use that to set up the reason why our assessment practices need to be trauma-informed. Now, it is my contention that assessment is as pressure-packed as anything students experience in school. The only aspect of school or maybe even of their lives that young people experience that might be more pressure packed than assessment is the social dynamic. So if assessment is not number one, it's definitely number two, it's up there. So in 2015, Henry Weisinger and JP Polly Fry published a book called Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters the Most. Their research looked at pressure and the overarching question they sought to answer was why do some people handle pressure better than other people? So let me tell you a little bit about the book and then I'm gonna bring it back to assessment. In the book, they debunk a widely held myth in our society and that is this, that when the pressure is on, some people are at their very best. Statistically, that almost never plays out. No one is at their best when the pressure is on. No professional athlete performs at a higher level in games, for example, than they do in practice, but Here's the second point. This is the critical part. Some people have learned to handle pressure better than other people. That is why some athletes seem to rise to the occasion. They don't actually rise to the occasion. They just don't fall as far. It's sort of an illusion. So if assessment is as pressure-packed as I'm indicating, and I believe it is to varying degrees depending on the age or grade level of the students, then we would be wise to purposefully help our students learn to handle the inevitable pressure moments of assessment. Weisering and Polly Fry never talk about how to avoid pressure. Pressure in life is unavoidable. 
we have to learn to handle pressure when pressure comes along. Now, I found this part super interesting, and I often talk about this in my workshops. In the book, they make this distinction between stress and pressure, and I never really thought of it this way until I read the book. Stress is a situation of too many demands and not enough resources. Pressure is a situation where something at stake is dependent on the outcome of your performance. Stress is a daily occurrence. We all experience stress. Stress in our jobs, stress as parents, stress as students. We experience stress all the time. But stress is not pressure. Pressure, real pressure, is periodic. Stress is every day. Every single day can't be a pressure moment. No one has the bandwidth to experience pressure 365 days a year. Let's say a high school student has a science project, a math test, and an English essay, all due within the same week or a very short period of time. That is stressful. But is it pressure? Well, maybe to some degree. But if the student starts to spiral, they may take themselves down the pressure pathway inadvertently. They start thinking to themselves, oh, I have, I have so many assignments due this week, and I need to get them done, because if I don't get them done, I'm going to fail. And if I fail, then I'm not going to get into the college or the university of my choice. And of course, my parents are going to be so upset with me and so disappointed with me. I, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to ruin the rest of my life because if I don't get into college, my choice. And on and on and on it goes. It's easy to romanticize pressure when you're not in it. Oh, they should feel that pressure. It's good for them. We need to season them to the realities of life. Yeah, maybe every once in a while, sure. But not every day. If they do that every day, if they spiral like that every day, it will debilitate them. Keeping things in perspective is not only necessary, it is critical because to not do so will actually do real damage. Here's what Weisinger and Polly Fry had to say about that. They say this, quote, When we confuse daily stressful situations for pressure moments, we react physically, mentally, and behaviorally in ways that are out of proportion to the circumstances. The danger lies in the fact that continually confusing stress for pressure habituates and we lose our ability to think clearly. Misdiagnosing stress as pressure reduces our abilities needlessly. End quote. The student that is spiraling is likely doing that, conflating stress for pressure. And again, we react in ways that are out of proportion to the circumstances. When I look back at some of my experiences with my students, I thought certain things about them that were actually quite dismissive. I'm not proud of that. And I never said it directly to them, but I thought it. And maybe you have too under certain, certain circumstances. I don't know. And if you haven't, then you are a much better person than I am. What are some things we or I typically thought about students who were overreacting? Oh, there she goes again, the drama queen. Always has to be dramatic about everything. Oh, there he goes again, making a mountain out of a molehill, making a meal out of it. Yes. Yes, they were. They were acting in ways that were out of proportion to the circumstances. Yep. 
and I could have actually learned something from that rather than being dismissive and internally condescending. I handled it okay. Just okay. But I know, had I known all of this back then, I could have handled it in a much better way. Because what they were doing, what my students were doing most of the time, was conflating stress for pressure. Like I said, I I think in most cases, I, I didn't make it worse. And I did help my students gain some perspective. But I definitely would have been more intentional with my actions. So let's bring this back to assessment. If assessment is as pressure packed as I am asserting, and I believe it is, and we need to help our students learn to handle the inevitable pressures that assessment brings periodically, then we would be wise to consider the degree to which our assessment practices inadvertently contribute to our students conflating stress for pressure. And again, inadvertently. No one does this on purpose. I didn't do it on purpose but I know I did it. Pressure happens, again, but it tends to be more episodic or arrive in certain intervals. It cannot be every day. No professional athlete, for example, can play at playoff intensity for the entirety of a regular season. They would definitely react, likely break down, physically, mentally, and emotionally at some point. But here's the good news. What Weisinger and Polly Fry uncovered in their research is that there are four common characteristics of those people in our society who handle pressure better than other people. They found that those who handle pressure better than other people approach pressure with what they call the coat of armor, C-O-T-E, the coat of armor. Coat stands for confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. That's the coat of armor. So again, back to assessment. If assessment is as pressure-packed as anything that young people experience in school, and we need to help our students learn to handle the inevitable pressures that assessment brings periodically, and therefore thinking about the degree to which our assessment practices inadvertently contribute to our students conflating stress and pressure, thinking about all of that, it would be fair for us to investigate the degree to which our assessment and grading practices contribute to or inadvertently take something away from our students' coat of armor. So how do we help our students become more confident, optimistic, tenacious, and enthusiastic? So let me wrap this up and give you a bit of a preview to where I think I'm going to take this next week. Assessment is a deeply human experience. And it's not just an exercise in filling in spreadsheets and collecting data. There is a human being on the other end of that experience, and that human being is going to have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed. The real question is whether that emotional reaction will be productive. Will they see assessment as an opportunity to show what they know? Or will their reaction be counterproductive? Do they see assessment as something to be feared? We have some control. I mean, they're not widgets, so we don't have total control. But we have a lot of control over the culture of assessment in our classroom. So we would be wise to keep that coat of armor at the front of our minds as we develop our assessment practices. How are we using our assessment practices 
to develop more confident, more optimistic, more tenacious, and more enthusiastic learners. Since we don't think clearly when we conflate stress for pressure, I think it's safe to assume that those who've experienced trauma will have a more acute, more intensive, and more debilitating reaction to the feeling of pressure, whether or not the source of trauma had anything to do with the assessments in the first place. The source may not be trauma, the assessment source, but they may still experience those emotions. Emotions are raw, and as Bessel van der Kolk's book title asserts, The Body Keeps Score. Now, I haven't read that book yet. It's next on my list. But that title is apropos. As the title suggests, the most recent scientific advances show how trauma literally reshapes both the body and the brain. Now, I've been reading another book on trauma, not specific to schools, but it has me thinking about the relevance to our work and assessment. The book is called What Happened to You? And it's written by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. And I'll have more on that book next week and some of the lessons I'm learning through that reading. So while assessment may not be a direct trigger, a student's emotions can trigger a disproportionate response when they begin to feel the emotions that are most closely resembling or even mimicking the emotions associated with their trauma. The fact that assessment is an emotional experience means we need to make trauma-informed decisions when establishing our assessment cultures and our assessment routines. We'll continue this thought thread, if you will, this conversation next week. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the pod, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Gorner or any suggestions you have for me. A reminder to check also the show notes for the upcoming trainings happening this spring. Next week, my guest is going to be Allison Dillard. Allison is an adjunct math professor at Irvine Valley College and is the host of the Allison Loves Math podcast. So, yep, you guessed it. We're talking math next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but you can certainly uh, rate and review the podcast anywhere that's available to you, including Spotify. So wherever you listen to the podcast, a rating there, if it's available, would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.